Tiki Hut Media. Pop the top on your favorite beer or whatever you drink from Tiki Hut Media. This is Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Hey there, Jerry here. Got my beer cracked open with me and ready for another edition of Soul Ramblings Podcast. Hope you got your beer or whatever you drink. On today's episode, we talk about a modest proposal, the sacrifice of war, discerning our future, and also some fun stuff. Rules for driving in the South. That's all coming up. And hey, wherever you're listening to this episode, be sure to click subscribe so you never miss a new episode of Soul Ramblings Podcast each and every week. Whether you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, YouTube, wherever you're listening. And hey, be sure to let us know on the Facebook page, link is in the show notes to this episode, or on Instagram where you listen to Soul Ramblings Podcast. We'd really like to know. You can also check us out each and every week on our blog, which is soulramblingspodcast.wordpress.com. And we're talking about faith and life today over a beer or three. And in 2 Corinthians 3.17, the Word of God says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. One of my favorite theologians, I like to read just about anything this guy writes. His name is Stanley Harawas. We've mentioned him on the podcast before. And he likes to tell the story of how he hung a poster on his office door at Duke University. The poster was published by the Mennonite Central Committee, and it displayed this haunting image of two people in grief holding one another, and underneath the image were the words, a modest proposal for peace. Let the Christians of the world agree that they will not kill each other. Now, Harawas then explains how over 20 years, students and professors alike would knock on his door with anger and frustration. They would barge into his office and declare, your sign makes me so mad, Christians shouldn't kill anyone. And Harwas would reply the same way every time. He would say, the Mennonites called it a modest proposal. We've got to start somewhere. And as we see the news and read the news each and every day about Russian forces invading Ukraine, assaulting by land, sea, and air, and the biggest attack by one state against another in Europe since World War II, Missiles rain down on Ukrainian cities and countless Ukrainian citizens, and they are currently fleeing for their lives. And Christians here in the U.S. have already floated around a bunch of possible responses from flooding the Ukrainian military with money, arms, and technology to invading Russia to make them pay for what they're doing, to praying for peace. Jesus commands the disciples to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which looks nice on a cross-stitch hanging on the wall in your living room until you start seeing images of bombs exploding and parents frantically trying to rush their children to safety right there on our TV screen or our computer screen or our phone screen. War is always complicated, ugly, and it's even addictive if we're honest with ourselves. It reveals our sinfulness in a way that few others can. War lights up our lust for bloodshed and retribution, 
War offers a video into our unadulterated obsession with the hoarding of natural resources. War conveys our frightening disregard for the sanctity of human life. War is our sinfulness made manifest in machine guns. War is the depth of our depravity. Even the word war fails to express the frightening nature of the act. We so quickly connect the word war with the righteous outcomes of our wars. Can you imagine how differently we would remember and even think about wars if we called them something else? World Massacre Two, for example? How about the Vietnamese Annihilation or Operation Desert Carnage? Hmm. Part of the strange witness of Christianity and an all too often overlooked aspect of the faith is that Jesus rules in weakness. God in Christ reconciles the world through the cross. Our salvation is wrought not with the storming of the temple with swords and shields, not by overthrowing the powers and the principalities with a mobilized military, but with a slow and nonviolent march to the top of a hill with a cross on his back. As the images continue to flood in from Ukraine, as the talking heads on every news channel tell us how we should feel and think about those images, I find myself... Oddly enough, looking to the Book of Discipline in my United Methodist Church, I am a part of the United Methodist Church, and and the Book of Discipline, if you do not know, the Book of Discipline is the book of our laws and how the church is organized and our social stances on many, many things. And it already outlines how we Methodists think and feel about war. Namely, that war is incompatible with Christianity. It reads this way. We believe war is incompatible with the teaching and the example of Christ. We therefore reject war as an instrument of national foreign policy. We oppose unilateral preemptive strike actions and strategies on the part of any government. As disciples of Christ, we are called to love our enemies seek justice, and serve as reconcilers of conflict. We insist that the first moral duty of all nations is to work together to resolve by peaceful means every dispute that arises between or among them. It might be a modest proposal, but we have to start somewhere. I never got to meet my biological maternal grandfather, He died well before I was born. He died when my mother was a little girl, as a matter of fact, during World War II. He fought in Europe alongside his brother, my great-uncle Joe. Now, my great-uncle Joe did survive and went through some horrific, hellish things in World War II. And as a child growing up and even in my teenage years, I always enjoyed listening to him talk about those stories. I don't know if I enjoyed them so much. I I just found them interesting and he was a great storyteller and had a way of drawing you in and I remember we were visiting his house one day and he was talking about things and I noticed something I'd never seen before there was a medal hanging on the wall it had his name under it and the unit he served in and so forth and the date and I just asked him I pointed to the medal and I asked him how did you get that Uncle Joe he waved it off he didn't say anything I just stood there waiting for more of an explanation behind the medal but none was coming. He was tight-lipped about it. So I asked him again, what was it like being in the war? And I remember he looked at me like you do when you want to warn a little kid 
away from touching a hot stove, and he said, What was it like? Scary as hell. Stupid middle school age me asked, Scary because you thought you might die? He said, No, Jerry. It was scary because I thought I might have to kill someone. In his study of men in battle in the Second World War, General Marshall observed that out of every hundred men along a line of fire during battle, less than a fifth of them would take part by actually firing their weapons at another human being. The majority would do everything they could, short of betray their comrades, to refrain from killing. And this led General Marshall to conclude this. He said, The average healthy individual has such an inner and usually unrealized resistance to killing a fellow man that he will not of his own volition take life if it is at all possible to turn away from that responsibility. Now, General Marshall's observation is not, I think, a psychological insight. At least, it's not only a psychological insight. It is, I believe, a theological one. I believe it's a theological insight that we hear confirmed in the creed and the scriptures that inform them. Many assume that the ultimate sacrifice we ask of soldiers is the sacrifice of their lives, and obviously that is a great and grave matter. But I think the argument of Scripture and General Marshall's study invites us to see it differently. The book of Genesis tells us that each of us are made in the image of God. Then Colossians expands on that claim, by asserting that the prologue of John's gospel announces, namely, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So therefore, we are made in Jesus' image, Christ, the second Adam, who nonetheless breathed the breath of life into the first Adam. And that is the blueprint according to whom we've been created. And Jesus would rather die than kill. And so should we. If our creeds and canons are correct, if we're made in the image of the Prince of Peace, then the ultimate sacrifice offered by those who take up arms is not the giving of their lives, it's forsaking their innate, God-given, Christ-like unwillingness to kill. To do so is to wound as deep as the Incarnation, for apart from the restoration made possible by the absolution of Christ, what's lost in the taking of another's life is the fullness of humanity. So as we understand this theologically, the one who takes life is the one who loses their humanity. And like you, over the past several weeks, I've looked at the heartrending photos on Facebook and social media and in the news of young school teachers in Ukraine holding weapons in their arms as awkwardly as a teenager with a learner's permit. The costs of Putin's unprovoked invasion are clear. The flare of rockets against the night sky. The domes of church altars reduced to rubble. Soon casualties will be counted up in numbers of a hundred or a thousand or more. But each life lost will be mourned as a single digit of infinite value by those who love them. But if the gospel is true, there's a greater cost to those victims of the war and still greater crime committed against them than simply an unhinged, unwarranted invasion. By forcing Ukrainians, civilians, school teachers, pastors, and young mothers to take up arms, the would-be forces force them to make a sacrifice more significant even of their lives. They're robbing them of their share of the image of God. Putin is not just simply 
wreaking a wound to their homeland, but to their very souls. And of course, our natural response is to curse him. But to curse is not to make sense. The only way Christians make sense of sin and death is by pointing to the promise of resurrection, specifically the promise that the risen one will return to this cruel world and make all things new. If there's one certainty at this point in the conflict, it's that we have received concrete photographic examples of what we mean when we profess he will come again to rectify the quick and the dead. He will come again to judge the quick and the dead. We'll be right back after this short break. I never thought I would live to see St. Jude Hospital visit. St. Jude was born of a long day. Hours after the crowds had departed, one lonely car remained. Dr. Donald Pinkle, the hospital's first director and employee, had work to do. Young lives depended upon it. They said he was a fool. They said there was no hope. But St. Jude was built upon big dreams and a trailblazing spirit. There were discoveries to be made and lives to save. So he worked. Soon people worldwide joined the mission, lending their time, energies, and talents. Today, St. Jude is more than 4,700 employees strong. The lights never go off at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. The diseases that take our children from us ravage day and night. So we fight through the small hours of the morning, searching for the next innovation. We clean like a life depends upon it, because it does. We cook like we cook for our own families. We fix what is broken. We facilitate care for today and seek tomorrow's cures. And when the sun rises on the other side of the planet, we are there too. We take our mission around the globe because we believe that no child should die in the dawn of life, no matter where they call home. We are stronger together, and working together, we will create a new, brighter future. This is our mission. There is urgency to what we do, because this moment... Pack up your bags, get out the door, you don't get chemo anymore. This moment is why we are here. Go to stjude.org or click on the link in the show notes. Back on Soul Ramblings podcast. I think it's time for another beer. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. Driver's license exams in the South are pretty much the same as everywhere else, but If you were to listen to non-Southerners, you'd think we were absolutely clueless about the rules of the road. Now, I'm from Tennessee originally. I live in Florida now. I moved even further south. And some folks can get downright ugly about our ability to drive on snow or ice. In Tennessee, we dealt with that. Not so much in Florida. Or sometimes they claim we don't know proper lane-changing rules. Anywho, 
we do know how to drive, and many of us even drive without endangering our lives, although you do want to stay off the roads when people are listening to college football on their radios in the South. It can get a bit dicey. The problem, to my way of thinking, is that other regions of the country don't include a section on their driving tests called Southern Rules for Driving. And so I'm taking it upon myself to ensure others know how to drive in the South before getting here so they won't be rough-talking people out their car window. Rule number one, stop for funeral processions. For the sake of all that is good and holy, please just pull over for the funeral procession as it passes already. I know it's not practical on some busy highways and in some big cities, but funeral processions tend to take the back roads anyway. Here's how we do it in the South. When we see a police car escort or a few cars with headlights on, we immediately pull over to the right-hand side of the road and wait until all the cars with headlights have passed or, or have their headlights on have passed. It's the way we show respect. I personally like to also turn down any of the classic rock or country music I might have been playing at top volume and look appropriately sad as the cars pass by because I am. Because Jesus said, or or the Bible says, rather, that we are to mourn with those who mourn. And even though I might not ho- know who those people are or even the person who died, I'm mourning with them, and it's a matter of respect. It doesn't matter what side of the road you're on. Even if the procession is coming up behind you, just pull over. Now, this rule, rule number two, doesn't really affect us here in Florida, but it does include a lot of the South, and I know it does in Tennessee. Stay inside when it snows. Why don't people just do what the forecaster says and stay off the roads? I know Southerners get made fun of for not knowing how to drive on ice, but I'd like to venture this statement. No one can say they know how to drive on ice because ice is, by its nature, unpredictable. It's a different experience each time. So anyone who is out there on the ice laughing their hind ends off at us Southerners, just remember, we can't get injured if we're sitting on our sofas. Rule number three, the courtesy wave. Other regions may also make use of the courtesy wave, but here in the South, it is an indicator of whether we were raised right. By which I mean, Mama and them aren't embarrassed to be seen with us in public. If someone lets you merge into traffic or pull out of a side road into heavy traffic, you can use any one of the types of courtesy waves to show your appreciation. One is the drive-by wave. This is the most common type of courtesy wave, one I use most frequently. You are busy trying to maneuver traffic, right? So throw up a hand and a quick thanks and ease on down the road. The finger waggle wave, that's when the driver holds up a hand or waggles her fingers, and that's often used by our memaws and church ladies. And then there's the changing the light bulb wave. This is the least common of the courtesy waves. It's one that's often used by people who have at some point ridden on a float in a parade or competed in a high school beauty walk. It's done by cupping the hand into a C shape and moving it like you were screwing in a light bulb. And one last important tip, if you think the driver behind you didn't see your courtesy wave, be sure to roll down your window for better visibility or hang your hand out for a quick wave. And now you know, especially if you visit Florida, you know how to drive in the South. 
coming up next week. My wife, Beth, and I celebrate nine years of being in Florida, being Florida residents. We moved here nine years ago in 2013. And there was some doubts after we first moved here about whether this was actually God's will. Have we messed up? Did we make a mistake? (laughs) Is this really God's will for our life? And that got us to thinking about all of the choices we make and and how the noise around those choices, everybody has an opinion, right, about the choices you you should make. And even some will be so bold as to say, this is not God's will for your life, or this is God's will for your life. But how do we decide, or better yet, discern what God wants for our future and for our life? Most of us want a very clear sign from God, a calling or an obvious open door or a sign. We envision God handing us a detailed plan and a brochure outlining the path we should follow and what each of our choices might lead to. Sometimes the fear of choosing wrong can keep us from choosing at all, or it can make us hedge our bets on the safest choice in hopes that we protect ourselves from any unexpected twists and turns that life can throw our way. But God doesn't necessarily call us to the safe choice or even a clear choice. Sometimes we have to take a step and see what we discover. Sometimes we have to faithfully fail forward. So how do we discern what next step to take? While there is no actual formula in determining what exactly we should do, I think Romans 12, too, gives us insight into how we should go about deciding. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In this short verse, the Apostle Paul gives three steps when it comes to figuring out God's will. One, choose not to conform. Two, allow our minds to be transformed. Three, test to determine God's perfect will for our lives. And all of this discernment can and should be done in community with others who can affirm your calling and next steps. We don't have to do it alone. So let's look at that first one. Choose not to conform. When it comes to taking the next step in a career or any life decision, it can be easy to turn to worldly ideas about success. You know, find the best paying job, put in long hours, invest in your career, even if it means sacrificing meaningful relationships and physical or mental health. The world's pattern is to earn your worth and value by climbing the ladder of success by doggedly fighting your way to the top. This cultural moment tells us to choose our life's path based on external factors such as pay or status and to disregard the internal cost of conforming to the blueprint of the world. The pattern of Christ, on the other hand, is completely opposite to the pattern of the world. Rather than looking for the markers of success based on what's in your bank account or how many plaques decorate your wall, Christ looks at the heart. Jesus said in Mark 8:36, "What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul?" Gaining wealth, status, or accomplishment is not the mark of victory in the eyes of Christ. Instead, Jesus looks to the heart of what we are doing and why we are doing it. Now, this certainly does not mean that our decision should always go against the better-paying job or the career with more status, but it does mean we have to dig deep into our why, even when it comes to good things. 
directing our lives on worldly methods or deriving meaning from our existence will ultimately erode our soul. What does that look like when it comes to choosing our next step in life? Well, take some time to determine what is underneath your desires. While going on a long-term mission trip is great, believing that doing so will earn favor in God's eyes is not. Choosing the career path that you think will bring you adoration and affection is directing our lives on something other than Jesus. Picking the job because it has more figures on the paycheck is not necessarily the right choice. Spend some time praying about your why and asking others to speak into your desires, and that will truly get to your heart and help you keep from conformity to worldly patterns. The second thing that is mentioned is allow your mind to be transformed. If we are not to conform to the world's ideas and patterns, the way we go about doing that begins in our minds. As Christians, our thinking and thought processes are to look markedly different from the culture. The way we arrive at our answers about our future will seem like we are completing an entirely different math problem than our neighbor. We not only need to think differently, but we need an entirely different imagination about human existence, one that's rooted in the deeper story, deeper love, and deeper identity found in the gospel. So how do we change our thoughts? Simply put, by being in God's word and by praying for his guidance. Through reading God's thoughts, the Holy Spirit can begin to change our mind about what matters most, what we should value, and what decisions we should make. As our thinking transforms into holy imagination, we will begin to see that God has less to say about what we do and more to say about how we go about choosing what we do. With a mind that patterns its decisions on that of Jesus, the doors we choose to open and walk through might not always make sense to those watching. It definitely did not make sense to those watching when Beth and I made the decision to move to Florida nine years ago. It could mean saying no to the option with benefits and a 401k in exchange for a job that uses our skill set to help uh, the least of these, for example. It could look like going to the lesser-known graduate school in order to be surrounded by a healthy community instead of the one that will help us get in the door at our first-choice employer. The factors going into making a choice may seem absurd to our family or friends who are basing their lives on the world's patterns, and yet this is God's plan and God's encouragement in making decisions. And then, test to determine God's will. It is only after the rejection of the culture's formula for a good life and a complete overhaul of our thinking that we will be able to determine if we are in God's will until we stop following the ways of the world and stop thinking like the world. We cannot have the clarity given to us by the Holy Spirit to choose what God has for us. When we know the character of God and how he moves, we can test whether or not an opportunity is something he would approve of. As we study his word and give it the chance to truly change us from within, we can determine what aligns with what we know to be true about him and what does not. It can feel scary at times for sure to make a move to a state 800 some odd miles away and set up camp there and start putting down roots. But as we maneuver through the process of seeking God's will, there is comfort in knowing that no matter what we decide, God can use our lives, 
even our missteps and mistakes and wrong choices, for His glory. There is no perfect formula for making hard decisions when it comes to our future, but there is a perfect God who is willing to walk through the decision-making process every step of the way. Again, be sure to get social with us on Facebook or Instagram. We have the links to those pages in the show notes of this episode. Wherever you're listening today, I invite you to once again subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave us a rating and review there as well, and you'll never miss a new episode of Soul Ramblings Podcast. Our email is soulramblingspodcast at gmail.com. Also coming up this Sunday and every Sunday morning during the season of Lent, we'll have a short Lenten devotional. I invite you to join us this coming Sunday morning for that short devotional. I'm Jerry Wicker. I want to thank you for the gift and privilege of your time this week on Soul Ramblings Podcast. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there that you could spend your time listening to, and I really, really appreciate you doing so with us today. Here's a last piece of advice as we wrap up today. If you believe in goodness and if you value the approval of God, fix your minds on whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and praiseworthy. Until next week on Soul Ramblings Podcast, drink responsibly, keep the conversation going, grace, peace, cheers. Thanks for listening to Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Download new episodes every week. And if you haven't already, subscribe and be sure to leave us a rating and review. Soul Ramblings is a Tiki Hut Media production. Mm-hmm.